Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. You're listening to Season 5 of Dakota Spotlight, A Better Search for Barbara. My name is James Wallner. Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications. This is the original report that came in um, on 4-12-1981 at 15-56 hours, okay? Um, and this is what it says. Call from Louise Cotton. Um, of her address, she lists it, uh, reporting that her daughter Barbara has not come home since yesterday. She is a 15-year-old, lists her date of birth, brown hair and eyes, small build, wearing a tan short jacket and blue jeans. Was last seen at a friend's house at about 10 p.m. last night. Was with a guy by the name of Stacy earlier in the evening. Stacy, first name, used to wash dishes at Cakes and Cones. Wow, what a ride we have been on in the last 11, 12, 13 days since I released first episodes 1 through 5 and then a very raw episode 6 with my interview with Williston PD. The Facebook group is growing rapidly. Thank you, all of you, for everything you're doing, from help with research and spreading the word about the podcast to digging up new information. At last count, the podcast has been listened to in at least 35 countries, and the Williston Herald newspaper published an article this last week about Barbara and the podcast. In fact, I'm in correspondence with the Herald's managing editor, Jamie Kelly, who says competing news organizations can't work together for a greater good. In fact, Jamie tells me that he's going to spend some of his own free time this weekend going through the Herald's archives, searching for old articles about Barbara. So, although I sometimes feel a little overwhelmed with this story, I don't in any way feel like I'm alone. That much is for sure. We, all of us, are in this together, moving forward with our better search for Barbara Cotton. This episode is going to be a type of recap or review of where we are. We learned a lot of new things last week from the Williston PD, and these things, of course, raise all kinds of new questions. I think our heads have been spinning a little bit with all this new information. We have three persons of interest. We have a new timeline for Barbara's last known whereabouts, new information about telephone calls between Barbara's mother and Stacy's mother. I also have a little more information about Stacy Warder's arrest and suicide in Malta after Barb went missing. You may recall that I said that I had an episode 5 prepared, but that it got bumped and moved forward after I got the interviews with Stacy Warder's sisters. Much of that episode was going to be about Frank Cotton, who was named as a potential person of interest by law enforcement in episode 6. I actually don't think we're going to get to that information in this episode either, unfortunately. 
But I will tell you that I've spoken to more of the Cotton family about Frank Cotton, and there is considerable disagreement on whether or not Frank Cotton might somehow be responsible for their sister's disappearance. I sincerely hope that you don't feel like I'm stringing you along with this information. It's just I'm kind of following the story as it unfolds, and I'm not sure I'll get to Frank Cotton in this episode. Before we dive in fully, a couple of smaller things to touch on. On the Dakota Spotlight Facebook group, I've been getting some questions about Barbara's cigarettes. You'll recall that the story goes that she left her cigarettes at home, and that in itself is an indication that she didn't run away because she would have taken them with her. I've seen some posts on the Facebook group questioning all of this, stating things like, Barbara must have come home Saturday night because her cigarettes were there, like she brought her pack of cigarettes home. Well, this whole time I've been making an assumption about those cigarettes, and for once my assumption was correct, at least according to Kathy Cotton, whom I spoke with yesterday. First of all, I should let you know Barbara did not have to hide her smoking from her mother, Louise. And the cigarettes at home were a carton of cigarettes, as I assumed. And so, yes, I agree that this carton of cigarettes left at home indicates she didn't run away. That's something she would have probably taken with her if she was going to run off. On the other hand, her glasses or reading glasses, whatever they were that were left at home, seemed to be of lesser importance than we thought. Barbara didn't need to wear her glasses. They were perhaps reading glasses or something. And apparently she didn't even wear them that often. Finally, before we dive in, I'd just like to say, please tell your friends about this podcast, A Better Search for Barbara. If you're on social media, please consider just writing one post on your feed and encouraging your friends to listen to Dakota Spotlight Podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. Some of the things that he liked to do um, could kill you. Because how would nobody know about this boy? He enjoyed choking and suffocating me and my sister. She was, I don't know, one of the kindest people I knew. But back then it was a popular hangout for the kids that got into trouble. She's not gonna, you're gonna run away with no money. And I feel guilty that we didn't do enough early on. Her boyfriend watched her walk to Recreation Park, which is five blocks from her home. Barbara never arrived at her destination and has never been heard from again. But mostly gentle and kind is what I remember about her. Uh, Louise Cotton called, and she reports that she thinks her daughter is in Scobie, Montana, with a Stacy Wardner. They might be in room 205 at Pioneer Hotel. The biggest new news we have is probably this, right? That the last sighting of Barbara, according to the current investigation, was not at the Plainsman, but at someone's house that night at a quote-unquote party. Here is Detective Danielle Hendricks again as she reads the initial call to police, which came in at around 3.56 p.m. on Sunday, April 12th. Um, so this is the original report that came in. Um on 4-12-1981 at 15-56 hours, okay? Um, 
And this is what it says. Call from Louise Cotton um, of her address, she lists it, uh, reporting that her daughter Barbara has not come home since yesterday. She is a 15-year-old, lists her date of birth, brown hair and eyes, small build, wearing a tan short jacket and blue jeans. Was last seen at a friend's house at about 10 p.m. last night. Was with a guy by the name of Stacy earlier in the evening. Stacy, first name, used to wash dishes at Cakes and Cones. Uh, Mrs. Cotton contacted him and he advised her that she told him that she was going to walk home from Cakes and Cones. Mrs. Cotton feels that um, there's another person listed in here. Um, may know where she is, but is not telling. Um, and I can't release that name, but what I can tell you is, is it's not Stacy. So, according to the investigator's current timeline, Barbara was last seen not at the Plainsman or walking to the park, but later that evening at a friend's house, a gathering, possibly a party. Party is pretty subjective, right? It could be three people, it could be 30. This was all according to Louise. This quote-unquote party was brand new information for me, and at first I thought, boy, I really botched this story, because if Louise told police that someone told her that Barb went to a party after she parted ways with Stacy Werder, certainly this would be the official version within the Cotton family, too. I mean, at some point, Louise would tell her kids and friends and family and everyone that Barb was last seen at a party. And so I reached out to Kent and Kathy Cotton and asked them, but no, they never heard of this party before. I also called Diane Latticer, Barbara's best friend at the time, because the day after Barbara went missing, Barbara's mother came to Diane's house looking for her daughter. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes, get the episodes early, and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. Hey, Diane, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Well, I'm hanging in there. It's been a crazy week, uh, 10 days. Um, you texted me last night that you finally, kind of finally got the nerve, or however you want to, exp- I'll let you describe it. You finally managed to listen to the podcast. I think it was hard for you to do that at first. It was it was difficult, and I was I really wanted to listen to it, but I just had to get up the, I guess, the courage because I knew it was going to make me cry. So, but I did. I finally mi- listened to all of it, all the way from s- season session one to session six to the cops interview. Anything you want to say about it at all? I don't know. Uh, the only correction is that, you know, my mom's last name was Mrs. Hansen and not Mrs. Nelson. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Whew, minor de- kind of, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't mean it that way, but at least it is a minor detail, but I'm like, well, no, my mom's passed. And yeah. Um, thanks. For, yeah. Well, thanks for helping her, us. Yeah. So did you learn anything new in the podcast? Well, I didn't know anything about the, the, that. Her mom said she was at a party. Her mom never mentioned to me that she was ever at a party. Okay. So I was a little surprised by that.
Speaking of this party, I just sent an email to Detective Hendricks again asking if she had any idea why this party information has not been known to anyone before. I thought perhaps maybe it's been held back from the public for some reason, for example, to protect the integrity of the investigation. I've not heard anything back yet at the time of this recording, but I'll let you know when I do. The managing editor of the Williston Herald, Jamie Kelly, tells us that in an article dated April 17th, five days after Barbara was reported missing, it states that Barbara was last seen in front of the Plainsman building between 11 p.m. and midnight. We need to be careful here, I suppose. On the one hand, we could say, well, what the heck, that doesn't line up with what we heard the other day. But we shouldn't forget the obvious explanation, such as the information in the Herald might have been wrong and has since been corrected, especially considering the fact that the present-day investigators put a lot of work into a new timeline. So their information should be correct, right? And building that timeline, obviously, we brought in some resources. You know, we had Team Adam come. Um, we've used the assistance of FBI, um, you know, really to just build a strong timeline. Obviously, um, that's, you know, it's like any case. Yeah, yeah, you know, you got you to gotta build that timeline. And so, for some unknown reason to us, but known to the police, Barbara's last known whereabouts being at the Plainsman doesn't seem to be correct, or at least it's not the current working theory. The current story is that she was last seen at a party with a friend. At least according to Louise. We know Louise got that information from someone. Detective Hendricks could not confirm for certain that that someone was contacted or spoken with back in the day. But... So I can tell you that contact has been made uh, in our years of having the investigation. Now, about this unnamed friend, the one who claims to have been at a party with Barbara. My first thought was, is this the quote-unquote friend we've been attempting to understand this whole time? If you recall, way back in episode one, the story goes that Barbara was having dinner with her boyfriend and a friend. Barbara was last seen leaving a restaurant on Main Street in her hometown of Williston, North Dakota, during the evening hours of April 11, 1981. She had dinner there with her boyfriend and another friend. We spent considerable time trying to figure out if the reference to the friend was Louise Cotton, who apparently saw Barbara and Stacy Werder downtown that night. Perhaps you'll remember me saying this. There is another thing to touch on regarding this dinner or whatever it was. As much as I hate to clutter an already fuzzy story, we have to ask, was there a fourth person? Bear with me for a moment. Information online states Barbara had dinner with her boyfriend and a friend. We have been trying to identify this third person and now thinking it was Louise simply chatting with them for a few minutes. But perhaps there really was a friend with them also, a third person. And when Louise sat down, she was the fourth person at the table. I asked Detective Hendricks about this the other day in the interview, and I think we can state with some confidence now that we have an answer. There was a friend with Barb at Cakes and Cones, and it's the same person that says she was with Barb at a party at 10 p.m. So this is the same person who she was with at a friend's house at 10 p.m. the night um, she disappeared, allegedly. 
Um, and Louise Cotton had concerns that this person was kind of like knew where she was, but wouldn't tell Louise. Um, I just am not releasing that person's name at this point. Um, however, I can tell you it's not Stacy. So we've gone from a mysterious boyfriend who we finally tracked down to being Stacy Werder, a man whose sisters told us he was paranoid schizophrenic and enjoyed choking and suffocating, a man who burnt down the family house in California when they were kids. Both of these sisters believe that their brother is responsible for whatever did happen to Barbara. And now we're wondering about maybe not a mysterious friend, but an unnamed friend. A friend who was with Stacy and Barbara at Cakes and Cones, and later goes to a party with Barbara. We've been told that the party was at a friend's house, but I'm not sure if it was at the house or home of this unnamed friend or someone else's house. The police do know, of course, and we don't know if this unnamed friend is male or female. I guess I'm assuming it's a female, but we don't know for sure. My mind keeps going back to Lori with a dog. Two or three days before Barbara went missing, Diane Latticer had a conversation with Barbara on the phone. Barbara was going to spend the night at this friend's house, possibly named Lori, and in the morning they were going to take their dog to the vet. Maybe this unnamed friend is this Lori with the dog. Again, we're not even sure the name is Lori. You know, I keep thinking of that Lori with a dog. The last person you know she was with was... Some Lori, maybe named Lori with a dog. Um, <laughs> right. And it's, I, I, it's so bad that I cannot remember her name, but I know exactly where she lived. She lived in the on the 18th um, housing project there in the brick ones, the townhouses. I remember that, but I cannot remember. I believe her name was Lori. Thankfully for the investigation, whoever this unnamed friend is, law enforcement know the identity and they've spoken with her or him. And whoever that person is obviously has incredibly important information. Who else was at this gathering or party that night? What was talked about? Did anyone talk about maybe going to Scobie, Montana, for example? We'll touch on that in a minute, but first this. Another interesting thing we learned last week was that so far in this podcast, regarding Stacy Werder, previously referred to as that mysterious boyfriend. What we have learned through our interviews with Barbara's friends and family is consistent with what law enforcement have been discovering themselves. Nobody knows about Stacy at all. In fact, here is Lieutenant Hendricks again. You know, the hardest problem we have had in this investigation is, is that no one can place Stacy and Williston besides Louise with Barb. Um, you know, the best friends didn't know that. Um, Nobody had knowledge really of who she, I mean, it was a shock to people that they thought she had a boyfriend. I find this fascinating and absolutely perplexing. I was fully prepared for us to learn from the police that this potential relationship between Stacy and Barbara had been established somehow. How is it possible that Louise knew about this and nobody else did? Unfortunately, Louise is no longer with us, so we cannot ask her. She would certainly be able to explain it if asked, but if she was asked before her death, nobody ever wrote it down, or if they did, that piece of paper never made it to the police file. I've posted photographs of Stacy Werder at inforum.com slash Dakota-Spotlight and on the Facebook group. 
If you're from Williston or if you lived in Williston at that time, take a look and let us know if you've ever seen this individual. We learned some very interesting new information about Stacy Werder. We've been operating on the premise or belief that Stacy worked in the oil fields, but again, according to Louise, Stacy was a dishwasher. You know, and according to the, I don't know if you want to call it rumor mill or speculation or hearsay, you know, Stacy allegedly worked in the oil fields, um, but Louise reports he was a dishwasher at Cakes and Cones. So we might think, okay, he did not work in the oil fields, but hang on, it's not that easy. What Louise told police on that first call was that Stacy used to be a dishwasher at Cakes and Cones, past tense. Was last seen at a friend's house at about 10 p.m. last night. Was with a guy by the name of Stacy earlier in the evening. Stacy, first name, used to wash dishes at Cakes and Cones. Stacy used to be a dishwasher at Cakes and Cones, but it doesn't sound like he was at the time of her disappearance. So, first of all, did Barbara meet Stacy at work? Barbara and Diane Latticer got jobs bussing tables. They were earning money. They were going to get apartments together. They had a plan. I asked Diane Latticer about all of this. And she says, Stacy Wardner, who used to be a dishwasher, washed dishes at Cakes and Cones. So I was wondering if you could tell us, I know you said you and Barbara worked in restaurants. And could you just give us the names of like, I know you worked together for a bit, then you then you went to a different restaurant. Could you give us all the names of these places if you have them? Well, Barb worked at, um, what's her name? Sandy reminded me it was called Country Kitchen at the time as a, a bus girl. And I had, did I think I quit and I was back at Thunderbird Cafe. And can you explain where these places are? Well, both Thun both Thunderbird Cafe and um, Country Kitchen was off the I the Highway Two bypass. So Thunderbird is now I can't I don't know the name what it is now, but it's close to Walmart. And then Country Kitchen's right there at at the corner of Highway Two and Million Dollar Way. So nowhere near downtown, right? Nowhere not near downtown. So I don't imagine. I can't imagine where she met this guy unless he saw they met at the country kitchen. Yeah, and I was thinking about that too. When you're, if you're, we're learning more about Stacy. If you're a drifter, the one job you can kind of almost always get somewhere is a washing dishes. I mean, it's almost right. a joke. If you don't have enough money for dinner, you can always wash dishes. So it's possible that when if you're washing dishes, you're doing that at different places around a community. It doesn't it's not like you know. Louise said he used to wash dishes at Cakes and Cones. He could have been at Country Kitchen for a day or two and they met there. Very possible. So Stacy might have met Barbara while he was working as a dishwasher. Seems very logical to me. Barbara was bussing tables. She brings dishes into the kitchen and talks to this guy washing dishes, Stacy Murder. Maybe on breaks they stand outside, out back, and smoke a cigarette. Stacy tells her about his adventures on the road. He's from California. He's been all over the place, to Texas. He's a man of the world. Barbara had spent her whole life in the North 
western corner of North Dakota. Maybe she's taken in by him. And remember, Barbara's not getting along with her mother at all. There's lots of fighting going on, and she wants to move out and move in with Diane's family, but Louise won't let her. Maybe Stacy Werder's talk of life on the road sounded almost adventurous and glamorous to Barbara. But if you think we can rule out Stacy as someone working in the oil fields, you're absolutely wrong. As we know, Stacy hung himself in jail July 15th or 16th in Malta, Montana, three months after Barbara's disappearance. Stacy's death certificate lists his occupation as not dishwasher, but a laborer in the oil fields. Now think about this. You're in Malta, Montana, and you work for the state. And I guess you're working on a death certificate for a guy who hung himself in jail. How do you find out what his occupation was? Maybe you consult a police report from his arrest, but it's also very likely that you speak with the deceased's parents. I mean, a lot of things have to be discussed, obviously, like when the body can be released for transport to California for burial, how do we get you his belongings, and so on and so on. In fact, the death certificate states the names and addresses of Stacy's parents. While compiling the death certificate, someone's gathering information, and I'm thinking they asked Stacy's parents what their son's occupation was, and apparently they told him he was working in the oil field. They would probably tell him whatever his latest job was, don't you think? This all becomes very interesting and important when we start to look at another person of interest that we've learned about, a man named Frank de la Pena, who lived in Williston at the time of Barbara's disappearance. He did work in the oil fields. He also had a car. He also murdered two young girls in Wyoming three weeks after Barbara went missing. Think about it. We have two men who worked in the oil fields. Both of them hung themselves in jail soon after Barb went missing. One of these men definitely knew Barbara. The other one definitely killed two young women. And so it begs the question, did these two men somehow know each other or meet each other in Williston while working in the oil fields? Let's look at this other weird detail we've learned about. Barbara does not come home on Saturday night. The next day, Sunday, her mother calls the police and reports her as missing. She tells them that her daughter Barbara was with Stacy Werder early in the evening, and she also tells the police that someone told her that Barbara was at a party at 10 p.m. at someone's house, and she thinks this person knows where Barbara is but won't tell her. The next day, Monday, Louise calls the police and says she thinks her daughter is in a hotel room in Scobie, Montana. Here is Detective Hendricks again. Uh, Monday, April 13th, 1981, uh, Louise Cotton called and she reports that she thinks her daughter is in Scobie, Montana with a Stacy Wardner. They might be in room 205 at Pioneer Hotel. Um, law enforcement responded and all that's documented is his received word that the girl is not there. I don't know how else to put this other than to say, what the heck does this mean? What are the possible ways for Louise to have gotten that information, regardless of whether or not it's accurate information? If it was that unnamed friend that had this information about the hotel room in Montana, where did she or he get that information? 
At first, I thought, maybe they all talked about it at that so-called party Saturday night. Maybe Barbara said, I'm taking off with Stacy to Scobie, Montana. How they would have the room number already, I don't know. Maybe they already knew people there in that room. But my point is, if they talked about it Saturday night, that unnamed friend would have that information. But that cannot be correct, I believe. Here's why. Barbara could not have told this unnamed friend that she was going to Scobie, Montana with Stacy Werder, because that unnamed friend could not have known about Stacy Werder at all, if I'm understanding Detective Hendricks correctly. She just told us that nobody but Louise even knew about this guy, Stacy, or could place him in Williston. The hardest problem we have had in this investigation is, is that no one can place Stacy in Williston besides Louise. So, unless I'm missing something, on that Saturday night at that party, if the unnamed friend knew that Barbara was going to Montana with someone, for some reason, she didn't know it was with Stacy Werder because nobody knows about Stacy Werder, I think. Hey everybody, this is James just inserting this comment, I guess, retroactively, because after I put out this episode, I realized that the logic is completely faulty on my part, although I'm going off of what Detective Hendricks said. She said... Only Louise could place Stacy in Williston with Barbara. But if this unnamed friend went to dinner with them, then obviously she or he can also place Stacy in Williston with Barbara. I'm sorry, this is a lot to keep track of. I'm just recording this little comment afterwards. I'm going to insert it, republish, and hopefully most of you will hear this part. Sorry about that. I guess flaw in logic. This is a very complicated story. Here's another possibility. Did this unnamed friend get a call from Barbara on Sunday or Monday from room 205 at the Pioneer Hotel in Scobie, Montana? Did Barbara Cotton tell her and say, We made it, I'm here, we're in room 205 in Scobie with someone named Stacy Werder or maybe even other people? I doubt it, and here's why. Detective Hendricks said that they have spoken with this unnamed friend in their current investigation. If that unnamed friend had spoken to Barbara on the phone from a hotel room in Montana, if that unnamed friend heard Barbara tell her that she was there with Stacy or whoever, I don't see why Frank Cotton, Barbara's brother, would still be a person of interest. I mean, they would know that Barbara was in Montana with this Stacy guy. Am I confusing you? Because I'm confusing myself. I'll reiterate. Detective Hendricks tells us that they have spoken with this unnamed friend, right? We don't know who it is, or what their memory is like, or anything. But if the source of the Scobie Montana Hotel thing came from that unnamed friend, whom the police have spoken to during the current investigation, certainly investigation would be focusing on whoever Barbara was reportedly with in Montana. This leads me to speculate that whoever told Mrs. Cotton that Barbara was in a hotel in Montana might not even be that unnamed friend. My head is spinning. How about yours? If she did not get this information from the unnamed friend, what other possibilities are there? And why Scobie, Montana, 13 miles, 20 kilometers from the Canadian border? Why Scobie, Montana, a two-hour drive from Williston? And the interesting thing is that Scobie, Montana is in the general area where Stacy will take his life three months later. I mean, it's not the opposite direction or anything. It's in northeastern Montana. I wanted to learn more about the Pioneer Inn in Scobie just because I wanted to find out more about this weirdness, I guess. 
I asked around and I got the wrong information at first and was told the Pioneer Hotel was a motel on the south side of town. I called this motel and talked to the girl working at the desk. She told me, no, this has never been the Pioneer Inn. The Pioneer Inn is an old brick building downtown. In fact, now it's an apartment building. In fact, I live there, she said. Okay, can you just tell us your name real quick and where you live? My name is Margaret Taskell, and I live in the Pioneer Inn. Used to be called the Pioneer, or what's it called now? It's still called the Pioneer Inn. Oh, it but is? It's, um, but it's, it, they kept the name because it's a historic building. Okay. Can you describe it for us? Well, it's a three-story um, concrete block building. It's on a corner. Um, Looks like it's on a corner. On the corner, yeah. Um, it's on Second Second Street. In Maine, yeah. You know, at one time it was the hotel um, in Scobie. Right. It used to have a restaurant and a bar in it mm-hmm. on the oh. ground floor. There was a bowling alley in the basement. There was. Oh wow hairdresser in there there was a sears catalog department in the ground floor of that building yeah, so at a, one time it was a pretty going place i guess i'm counting the windows on the long end it's one two three four five six seven eight nine ten at least like 12 windows on the long end and then on the short end facing the street there's three yeah there's three or four right so or- 205 would have been i assume on the second floor Two or five would have been on the upper floor. On the upper floor. Are they are the there still? ground floor, I live on the second floor. Okay. And my room number is one. So unless it was different. So theoretically, when you go home tonight, so are there still numbers on the doors? Yeah. So theoretically, when you go home tonight, you could... Not that you need to. I'm just saying, theoretically, you could find room 205. We don't need you to knock on it or anything. I'm just curious <laughs> where it is. Like, what part of the building? I mean, we're just all super curious about this whole story. It's all so such a mystery. So it would be, 205 would be on the, more on the west end of the building. Right, near the and back. And on the third floor. So possibly the... You think like one is way at the back and then it goes one, two, three, four towards the street? Yeah, let me think here. Um, one, two, so three, four, five. Maybe the fifth window from the back on the top floor? Yeah, probably something like, like that. I can see that right now on Google. I can actually see that window on Google Maps. So one, two, three, yeah. four, five. That would be maybe 205, one of those rooms up at yeah. the top floor. Wow, that's... Yeah. What a coincidence um, calling you. I also spoke with a retired sheriff from the area named Fitch Hans. He didn't feel like being recorded, but he did tell me that to his knowledge, the Pioneer Inn was never known to be the home of any kind of particular type of crime. That is, it wasn't a place where cops would go to bust prostitutes or drug dealers or anything like that. He said it was just a normal hotel with a restaurant and a bar on the ground floor. He did confirm that back then there were a lot of seismographic workers there, lots of activity related to the oil industry. He also noted there were lots of vagrants and migrant workers around there at the time. 
Perhaps you'll remember that in the last episode, in my interview with the police, I asked them if they had any knowledge of a suicide note left by Stacy Werder. I asked because I'd heard a type of rumor that there was a suicide note, and the contents of that suicide note would lead us to believe that Stacy Werder was not involved in Barbara's disappearance. I was also told that, for some suspicious reason, the police did not want the contents of this suicide note to come to light. Well, I've been in touch with Stacy's sisters in California again, and the consensus now is that there probably never was a note. They're going to ask one more person in the family, but at present, it does not look like there was a note at all. If that changes, obviously, I'll let you know. Right now, I'm chalking up the suicide note story to folklore and rumors. By the way, I've learned a little bit more about Stacy's arrest and suicide in Malta. He was arrested on July 15, 1981, for disorderly conduct at 9.54 p.m. by Malta police officer Rue. I think I pronounced that right. It's R-I-O-U-X. Stacy was discovered deceased by Chief of Police Weber at 8.34 a.m. on July 16th. There were two other inmates in the jail at the time, but not in Stacy's cell block. He was all alone. One of the other inmates talked to Stacy through the bars for some time that night. He also said he didn't hear anything from Stacy's cell that night. Let's talk real quick about the phone calls between the mothers, Stacy's mother and Barbara's mother. You'll recall that Stacy's mother spoke with Barbara's mother on the phone at some point. Stacy's sister Laura told us that she remembers this happening. I just, I can remember mom talking about it and she would talk to Barbara's mom on the phone and I don't know how long she stayed in contact with her, but I, I recall them talking about it. I, I never heard anybody like accuse my brother, but. And investigators at Wilston PD also have information on this in their records. And then we find these handwritten notes from, it looks like. September 1st, it might be August 1st or September 1st. I can't tell if the eight is an eight or a nine. Um, So either August 1st or September 1st, 1981, a message from Mrs. Cotton, um, Mrs. Wordner, Stacy's mother called about three weeks ago. She gave her phone number and she said that Stacy talked about Barb before he committed suicide, said if Barb comes back to tell her to call Mrs. Wordner. Um, Mrs. Cotton will call back uh, with that phone number, and she does. So if you're following this, on either September 1st or August 1st, Louise calls the police in Williston and says she got a call from California from Stacy Warder's mother about, quote-unquote, three weeks ago. I'm going to take a guess here and say that it was September 1st when Louise called the police, which would put that first phone call from Cynthia about three weeks after Stacy's suicide. Stacy's mother tells Barbara's mother that Stacy had talked about Barbara before he killed himself, and she tells Louise, if Barbara comes back, tell her to please call me. What does this mean? Does Cynthia Werder think that her son killed himself over a girl? Does she want to confront Barbara, perhaps? What the heck did you do to my son? What happened out there, anyway? Or does Cynthia Werder suspect that her son might be responsible for something about Barbara's disappearance? According to Laura, Stacy's sister, he once almost strangled their father to death with an extension cord. A clear-thinking and rational mother might suspect that her son had something to do with this, but on the other hand, 
a mother who's just lost a son to suicide cannot really be expected to be clear-thinking or rational. Is it possible that Cynthia Werder thought her son might be responsible for something, and she's trying to throw people off the track by saying things like, when Barbara comes back, have her call me? So much mystery. So many questions. I'm actually going to wrap up this episode here. In the coming episodes, we'll talk more about the two Franks, Frank Cotton, Barbara's brother, and Frank De La Pena, who left Williston for Wyoming just three weeks after Barbara disappeared and promptly murdered two young women. After this, Frank De La Pena was arrested. Just like Stacy Werder, he took his own life in jail. But before signing off, I just got word about the event for Barbara Cotton. It will be held on April 11, 2021, which marks 40 years to the day that Barbara went missing. It will take place at Recreation Park in Williston between 2 p.m. and 6 p.m. It's free to the public. Family, friends, and the community are encouraged to attend. Snacks and drinks will be provided. I plan on attending unless we get one of those April blizzards and I'm unable to travel, which is totally possible around here. I'd love to meet you, and I'm looking forward to meeting Kent and Kathy and seeing Sandy Evanson again and meeting all of you. I might just set up a microphone on a tripod and let it roll all afternoon, and if you want to walk up to that microphone and say something about Barbara or the event or the podcast or anything at all, you might just end up in a future episode of Dakota Spotlight Podcast. Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications, researched, written, recorded, and edited by me, James Wallner. This season is dedicated to my daughters and to all daughters everywhere. Some music in this season, including the song you're listening to now, provided by North Dakota-born, former Wishick area resident and UND grad Isaac Turner of Kalamazoo, Michigan, and his seemingly infinite number of musical bands and projects. This band is named Wowza in Kalamazoo. We also heard a little from his bands Out and the Hollis Group. Search for Wowza, Out, and the Hollis Group on Bandcamp.com or see the links in the show notes. Thanks much, Isaac and friends. To learn more about Missing Kids, check out the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at missingkids.org. To contact me, shoot me an email at dakotaspotlight at gmail.com. If you're loving this season, please tell your friends in real life and on social media and give me a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. And why not come and join us at the Dakota Spotlight Facebook group? Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Season 5, A Better Search for Barbara. Be safe, stay warm, and see you next time.
Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.